Hello again and welcome to Kendrew Dirt Gardening 2.0. Forest edibles. What does that mean? Well, I guess it's kind of like uh, being interested in foraging, but some people are captivated by fruiting trees and shrubs that you might find in the wild. The new version of this interest is cultivating some of these woody plants in a home orchard. Dan Furman is co-owner of Cricket Hill Garden, a second-generation nursery famous for tree peonies in Thomaston, Connecticut. Since joining the business in 2010, he has worked to expand the peony production program at the nursery, as well as to diversify the stock to include unusual landscape and forest edibles. He is interested in growing and popularizing pawpaws, persimmons and others in northwestern Connecticut, and also uncommon fruits like Asian pears. Hello, Dan, and welcome to Kendrew's Real Dirt. Hi, Ken. Thanks for having me. You're so welcome. I met you a couple of weeks ago at the Connecticut Flower and Garden Show, where you were giving a lecture titled Backyard Orchards. Uh, tell us about what you told people in your presentation. Well, it was uh, a couple different tracks, um, mainly about um, considering different kind of unusual plants, which might not be the first to come to mind when people are thinking about adding uh, woody uh, fruiting perennials to the landscape. And then also <clears throat> evaluating a site and looking at, you know, what would really uh, thrive in particular locations. And one of my big philosophies, and I think for a lot of gardeners, is really um, the right plant, right place. And uh, if you cite a plant initially in a location where it's going to be happy, you're probably going to end up um, having to do less for it than you would if you put it in a place where it's going to be struggling and you're going to be constantly worrying about disease pressure and that sort of thing. Oh, well, you mentioned disease. Uh, now, you were talking about edible plants for the most part? Yes, yes. Um, different, um, some of the ones that I touched on were the uh, pawpaw, the Asmina triloba, um, a native to the uh, eastern seaboard. Um, it actually has the largest fruit of any um, plant native to North America. Uh, also the American persimmon, which is very interesting. Um, there are some interesting hybrids being done between the American persimmon and the Asian persimmon. Well, we're going to get into all of yeah. these. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I don't want to get ahead of ourselves. You mentioned disease, and that's very interesting to me because if you're trying to have a home orchard and it's, mm. it's somewhat traditional maybe peaches and apples mm. um, if, if you don't have a serious spraying regimen yeah and you know in cultivation apples uh, on orchards it's unless they're organic which is so hard yeah uh, they're sprayed six to eight times a year oh now, yeah now i think some of these plants that you're growing which are which do fairly well on their own in the wild they don't require that kind of maintenance, pesticide maintenance. Yeah, yeah, that is, um, you know, one reason that I'm very interested in them. Um, since uh, our nursery here, my, when my parents founded it um, in the late 80s, we've always done things organically. And I've really, I'm kind of, you know, of this newer generation of growers that has uh, a lot of skepticism about uh, applying synthetic pesticides and herbicides and that sort of thing. So something like the pawpaw, which is native, really has very few uh, fungal diseases to worry about. For us, particularly in the Northeast, almost no insects. Um, so you can really have a nice crop of fruit 
that is produced organically um, without you know all these poisons being applied. Now, of course, with the pawpaw, the fruit is just it, it's very strange. It's um, <laughs> it kind of it looks like a mango. Um, it's a mango shape, and it's uh, when it's when it's on the tree, it's just kind of a a, a dark green. Um, and then as it ripens, it does become streaked with brown. So it's not aesthetically the most pleasing. Um, it's a lot different than your kind of classic Macintosh apple, which has the nice uh, green and red kind of um, skin. Mm -hmm. uh, and then, of course, with the pawpaw also, it's, um, it's a very, uh, very soft um, kind of a challenge, I think, for people to know how to eat it the first time. Um, I, I find the best way to do is to cut it in half and, and spoon out the flesh. Um, it also has some large seeds, but those luckily separate easily from the flesh. I think as people become more familiar with it, it's definitely going to be a tree which um, it, you're going to see planted more. Uh, the fruit is very good. It, it doesn't ship well. That's another reason it was well, never... that's Yeah, that's what I'm thinking. That, that yeah. Not only is it ugly... <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> But uh, th that's that's really the issue, I think, is that uh, it, it never became really popular because it's just it's difficult to, as you said, to ship because if you try yeah. to ship it ripe, it's too soft and right. But, but it would ripen off the tree, wouldn't it? Yeah, it does. Um, it, you have to pick it before it's totally ripe, and then it is a little bit difficult to get it to ripen indoors. But I think it's just a matter of overcoming our idea that you know all fruit if fruit when we think of home fruit it's either a peach or a pear or, or an apple which are all you know imported from uh, Europe or or the you know Eurasia um, the pawpaw was enjoyed by Native Americans for millennia before you know white settlers arrived so it's I think getting back to what is native to this re to north america to the to the east coast and and the eastern part of the united states and plants which are really you know the whole native plant movement i think is tied into this because you can grow them without all the the inputs necessary for you know some of these more exotic even though the apple we think of as you know the american fruit mm -hmm. because of johnny appleseed and everything it really is a an exotic it's not it's it's not native yeah, I always think of that when I hear as American as apple pie. And I think, exactly. Oh, yeah, really, not exactly. Well, it sounds like Pawpaw has a public relations problem. Yeah. So, yeah. so turn us on. What does it taste like? Can you describe it? Um, well, it's often described as a cross between mango and banana. Um, it's very kind of sweet and custardy. Um, I think people really just have to try them for themselves. And they are showing up more and more in farmers markets. Uh, there are some farmers here in Connecticut who are uh, bringing them to the farmers markets um, in late August and September when yeah, they're I right. I was so, wondering about that. That's that seems yeah. to be the way to go is through farmers markets, and then yeah. people will start it, asking for them. And, yeah, and it sounds very tropical. All those descriptions you made. The foliage on the tree also looks very tropical. It's it's. Um, kind of elongated and comes to a point and the leaves are quite large uh, up to 12 inches so it's um it's very unlike any trees that we're you know deciduous trees that we're familiar with um, yeah but it's a handsome tree and not very is. large it's a it's actually would make a good landscape tree 
Well, you'll you'll learn something about me when I tell you that I think the the flowers are pretty. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, you know, reading people in the late nineteenth century, early twentieth century, uh, there are all these books about trees and gardening, and the pawpaw is always mentioned, and there are all these strikes against it about why it's an inferior plant. And one is the fruit is too soft and too sweet, and the other is the flowers are so ugly. Oh. But I, <laughs> I think they're quite attractive, also. They're they're pretty small. They're about an inch inch in diameter, and chocolate they're very... brown. Yeah, yeah. Some people describe them as uh, lurid purple. I've read that, <laughs> uh, but quite unusual. I think um, if you were to cut a, a flowering pawpaw branch and show it to um, most people, they would have absolutely no idea what that was. Right. Um, and what's also interesting about the the flowers is the pollination of the pawpaws because um, bees are not are not attracted to the flowers at all. So um, a lot of the pollination is done by flies and um, other little insects. And the theory is is that the flowers actually resemble um, rotting uh, flesh that you would find dead dead animal flesh that you'd find in the wild. And um, so and also the smell. They kind of have a um, a very rich. Uh, kind of organic smell to them. You're not making so, this public relations. Uh... <laughs> I, no, I, well, I, I think it's, um, yeah, but it, it's very interesting that, that uh, uh, the, um, the way that the flowers seem to mimic uh, other things in the wild that attract, um, attract flies. Well, to you, do you're the talking to me. I'm like, uh, I'm so into the carrion flowers, yeah. <laughs> the carrion scented even, and the, well, not that I like to smell them, but you know, uh, Jack in the pulpit and lots of exactly beetle yeah. uh, pollinated plants. Yeah. Weird, but lovable more and more. Yeah. Now I have to tell you a couple of times in my life and for, especially the first time uh, I was out in a garden and someone who knows better than I do said, oh, hey, oh, here, you must try this. You really must try this and handed me a small orange fruit. And I bit into it and everybody laughed because it was an American persimmon and it was not a ripe American persimmon. Uh. And it was, I, I don't know, I will, I guess like eating cotton or although I've never eaten cotton, but uh, that alum, that puckery. Oh, yeah. What happens to you? So the American persimmon how does that go from being a puckery little fruit to something that you'd like to eat? Well, it's, I guess the, the popular or the, the common conception is that it is with the, uh, the frost, but it really does not, is not dependent on the frost. It's just about the number of days after the fruit is set and, and it ripens. It does go from this extremely astringent, totally unpalatable thing to something which is really delicious. It has a kind of apricot honeyed spiced flavor uh becomes very soft and um really a uh, an uncommon treat i um some of my trees have just begun to produce fruit last season and i was really really blown away by them they're uh i think um for a lot of people uh might be more familiar with the japanese persimmon the uh, the variety fuyu we often see in the grocery stores in um uh, December and January. And the American persimmon is kind of similar to that, but a much more intense flavor. Uh, hmm. it's, well, um, I don't think people know how to eat Japanese persimmons either. Cause, uh, yeah. 
when you think it's too ripe and time to throw it out, that's when you eat it. Yeah. Um, <laughs> well, I know that you've been growing some plants that I've been growing and and I, even giving away. Uh, I had, now you don't call them choke cherries. Is that is that what you call aronia choke cherry? Yeah, I that another public relations problem. That <laughs> is... <laughs> But I, uh... I gave a choke cherry to uh, my neighbor, and she's been making jam for years mm. now with great success. It's so it well, it's it. I don't. I hate to say that something is foolproof, but <laughs> it practically is. Yeah. And we're in deer country. I don't know why the deer don't eat it. They probably would in the in a different place. But even the birds don't take the fruit. And her, mm. her one shrub is it's the black one. And it's just loaded with fruit. And she makes jam, as I said, every year. And she's also starting to collect elderberries mm. from uh, the ditches on the roadside and the waste places and doing jam with them, too. I, I think that a lot of these plants are really, they're just there for the growing. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, those two that you mentioned, I think um, they just offer so much appeal in terms of, uh, well, the landscape aesthetics, the choke cherry, uh, the aronia bush, it's beautiful in flower. Um, the fruit, obviously, that's produced in the late summer, if we don't get out there and pick it for jams or preserves, the birds love it. Um, eventually, they'll eat it. And then the, the fall color on it is great. And it's so adaptable. Um, you know, you can really grow it anywhere. And, and then same with the elderberry. It's, um, it provides, uh, you know, beautiful, interesting lacy foliage, great flowers. Um, the birds or the, the bees are attracted to the flowers and then the birds to the berries. Um, and then you can grow them in, in wetter spots where, you know, a lot of other plants simply won't, won't, won't do. So yeah, both of those bushes, I think are, um, they're kind of over, they've been overlooked. Like, like you said, we drive by the elderberries on the side of the road all the time. Um, and there are some interesting ones rather than just the the straight wild species, um, ones which have been selected for variegated foliage and uh, so that kind of landscape side of it and then also larger fruit fruit set, um, you know, a little bit higher yielding. So yeah, both of those I think are um, really, really great bushes that a lot of people could find spots for in the, in the home garden. Uh, early in the spring, which is soon, <laughs> late in the winter Hopefully. and early in the spring, uh, another plant that I see, a tree that I see along the roadside before the dogwoods bloom, it's really almost before anything. It, it, it's even before the cherries bloom are the amelanchiers. Yeah. And I know that I've grown shrubby ones and tree ones, and a lot of people are harvesting the fruits from, from the amelanchiers. Now, which of the amelanchiers bear fruit that you might harvest? Well, the, uh, there are two, there are, as you said, there are a lot of different species, um, but the two main ones that people cultivate for the fruit is um, the very large shrubby one that's native to the Northeast, and that's the um, canadensis, uh, also known as, um, there are a lot of different names for it. I know, it, I the, love the names. <laughs> yeah, the shad berry, the service berry. Um, around here, people call them June berries because mm. that's when they're ripe. Um, and then there's the other one uh, from the uh, uh, the plain, uh, I guess the kind of uh, Western Plain states and up into Canada is the uh, Amelanchar alnifolia. 
Um, and that one is kind of most commonly known as the Saskatoon, which is mm -hmm. named after a, um, uh, a city in Saskatchewan. I guess it's actually the capital of Saskatchewan. And there are a lot of um, the uh, Amalenka or Al Alnifolia growing around there. Um, yeah, I, it's a it's a shrub. It's it's interesting, you know. Once you start to, it's just it's a shrub that I only began to really appreciate last year because I was able to identify it, and um, and then kind of once your eyes are open to it, you just see it everywhere. Uh, mm -hmm. And um, last year is also I just harvested some wild berries and made a delicious pie with them. Um, really nice. Uh, the seed has a really nice kind of. Um, um, uh, almond taste to it that uh, contrasts nicely with the really uh, very sweet berry. And the berries, they, they resemble a blueberry, but they hang in these clusters of, of four or six. They are difficult to harvest, particularly the, uh, the canadensis type, which is native around here, because they are, they are pretty high up on the bush. Mm. So you eat the seeds, you eat the whole thing. Yeah, yeah. Well, I like guess, a blueberry, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, there is some concerned that if you ate say 10 pounds of, of raw fruit you you might uh end up poisoning yourself from the seed but i think you would run into other problems before you, you got to that point <laughs> yeah i think it would take care of itself actually yeah, yeah. <laughs> i should say that i'm speaking with dan Furman, co-owner of cricket hill garden and um, we're talking about uncommon fruits and mostly we've been talking about native uh local to the Northeast for primarily, but I know that you're also growing things like quince and, mm -hmm. and we go, oh my goodness, medlar. Nobody <laughs> grows medlar and they're so beautiful. Yeah. But how about Asian pears? I'm, I dream that it's easy to grow an Asian pear. Now set me straight. <laughs> well, I would say, um, for non-native fruit, Asian pear are, are pretty low input. Um, they uh, they definitely get less um, fungal issues than than an apple, um, and they uh, they don't get fire blight anywhere nearly as badly as European pears. Um, they are quite vigorous, so training the young tree and getting a good scaffold established when the tree is young is very important. I think um, we have several. Uh, my parents planted several uh, about 25 years ago that were basically planted and then untended uh, for 20 years. Mm. And um, they produce nice crops of fruit every year, a little, you know, some blemishes here and there. But, uh, you know, really, we don't do any spraying on them and get very nice fruit every year. Uh, they are very heavy. Uh, they'll set almost all the all the all the blossoms, almost all of them will set fruit. So. They do need thinning if you want fruit that's larger than uh, like a, uh, well, it's a little bit larger than a golf ball if right. you don't, don't thin it, but not much. So, you know, there's, there's work required for, I think, all fruit trees. Um, but the Asian pear, I think you're starting out with a very nice hardy one, uh, pretty disease resistant. So it's less of a, uh, less of a battle. Do you need more than one? Um, there are some which are partially self-fruitful, so you will have a, a decent um, uh, self-pollination, but always yields are increased with, uh, with two. But there are some that will set fruit by themselves. Now, you mentioned that your parents have been growing them for about 20 years or bought several. Did they yeah. buy different varieties? Um, they did. They bought um, 
they bought a very a Chinese one um, and then a couple Japanese as well and uh, they're they're perfectly round uh, if that says it globular they're about the size of an apple or an average apple they have they're crisp in case anyone hasn't sampled one and they have a kind of rough skin like some pears do Amer not american but the familiar pears mm. in the market but i think they're just they're just so juicy yeah and delicious yeah. yeah they are um they're, that's really what why I think people are attracted to them because of that their crunch and their juiciness. Um, particularly the Japanese pears are very very sweet and juicy. Uh, there are some of the uh, Chinese Asian pears. They actually have that um, more oblong shape and and look more like the uh, typical European pear. Um, and they they do because there are a few different species that wild species that the cultivated ones are descended from. So. Um, do a little research and plant different varieties and you can have fruit ripening from um, late August all the way through early October. So you can have a really long season with a few different varieties. Well, well we've only touched on a few things. I know that you're growing a Nanking cherry and, and as I mentioned, quince and medlar and people don't even know what medlars are. And in Europe, they're so beautiful and people use them. It's kind of a, something you might see in a, in a formal cloister garden as, a, yeah. as the edging or a central feature. And it, and it has a fruit a little bit like an apple. Yeah, it's, uh, it's in the same family. Um, it kind of, people describe it as kind of looking like a large crab apple with a with an open end uh very strange looking fruit again and um those need um you harvest them in the late fall uh i always thought that after a hard frost but apparently again that's not necessary you can just harvest them after the leaf fall um, which is usually in late september or october and then you bring them in and ripen them um, in a dark place uh, just in um, like a tray or something so they're not not touching and the the proper term for that I guess is blet you blet them <laughs> which is essentially letting them rot a little bit for, for like two weeks uh, again not you don't yeah not a great um, mar <laughs> marketing point, no. yeah no you blet them and um, at that point they're very soft uh, the center it tastes just like uh, spiced applesauce I would I would say. So you can and, eat them fresh. You eat them out of hand. Yes, yes. And I was actually um, just this past weekend talking to someone um, about medlars and saying how, you know, it's uh, it requires, you know, a kind of introduction and, um, you know, you have to kind of educate people about how you use them. And she told me, oh, but where I come from in Bulgaria, everyone knows them. Everyone just eats them right off the tree or not right off the tree, but eats them um, just as a fruit out of hand. So right. it's uh, there's a lot of, you know, we shouldn't assume that just because we don't naturally know how to consume this fruit that other people haven't um you know, enjoyed it for a very, very long time. And perhaps we can learn how to do that as well. Well, you've turned us on to some things that most people are not familiar with. And I thank you for that. Uh, my guest has been Dan Furman, co-owner of Cricket Hill Garden in Connecticut. And I guess in the future, people can find out more. Well, they can find out more right now. And we'll have a link on the uh, Kendrews Real Dirt website <clears throat> for people who are interested in learning more and for getting more information. 
uh, on, on even acquiring some of these trees for their own wild home orchards. And mm. thank you again for joining me. Thank you, Ken. It was my pleasure. It's great to speak with another young, passionate horticulturist. And Dan Furman certainly has a passion for growing wild edibles. I don't know about you, but I am fascinated by woody perennial edibles. Now, a lack of uh, full-day sun keeps the number of trees and shrubs I can have to a minimum. I have blueberries, and I like the flowers. The birds get the fruits. Uh, my purple-leaf peaches do bear fruit, and the squirrels love them. I also have many black walnuts. I'm pulling them out all the time. But the citrus trifoliata, the trifoliate hardy orange, has masses of pretty much inedible fruits. Now, pawpaws. They are understory trees and might work for me. Join me again next week for another edition of Ken Drew's Real Dirt, Gardening 2.0. I hope to have another guest, and I'll see you then. 